Good morning, church. It's uh, good to be with you again. If, if, you, if you don't know me, my name is Scott. I'm not Pastor Scott. I have been known as Pastor Scott, and uh, I've been known as Missionary Scott. I've been known as Teacher Scott. And um, I'm also feeling a little bit like the imposter syndrome that you guys were uh, talking about a couple weeks ago and actually uh, followed up with even last week. And um, I can't see you. This is normal, I guess. Um, I'll trust that... Uh, I'll trust that you're with me. Um, imposter syndrome, only in that at the, at the moment, um, I'm not working as a pastor. I am over the hill in Scotts Valley. We are part, my wife and I, my wife, Sally, brings you greetings. Sally and I preached here about a year ago. It's just after you went on the gleanings trip last year. It encourages me to hear that you're doing that again. We're trying to put a team together um, for our church to do the same thing. Because when Sally and I were here, we were so impressed, and what a great opportunity as family I mean, half your church just left. I hope you guys know that. Um, this, it, things are going on here, and, you know, if the next generation can come up, and that's what's being modeled to them, you know, praise God. Um, anyway, all that to say is I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm, I'm working as a, a painting contractor right now in, in Santa Cruz area. I started at Mission Springs and keeping the lights on. I'm licensed and got my insurance and all that, but I do feel like an imposter sometimes. I feel more like a pastor than I, than I do a painter, but I've been painting now for a couple of years, and I get opportunities to preach, I get opportunities to serve in different ways. My wife and I are involved in leadership at our church, and we do a lot of things pastorally. So when Pastor Scott asked me, Pastor Scott, to fill in for him, I'm always a little apprehensive because, you know, the joke amongst pastors is that you want the visiting pastor to be okay, you want him to be faithful to the word, but you don't want him to be that good. Because people were like, oh, good, Pastor Scott's back after the silent retreat. So that's, that's what we're going for this morning, and, um, I, and I hope that's okay. We're going to take a little bit of liberty. The passage this morning, John Stott says that Romans 8 is without a doubt one of the best-known, best-loved uh, chapters in the Bible. Um, I'm going to have a hard time. I'm just going to leave my glasses on. Um, I hope that's Okay. I'm going to read the passage for us, um, and I don't know if we have that slide. Yeah, there it is there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is a fantastic series you guys are doing this year, Be Like Jesus, and and taking this month to think about things where we're not like Jesus. And um, again, I mentioned the imposter syndrome. I was impressed um, last week. I appreciate for the, the, the two people who came up to share their interactions with how they're feeling about being an imposter, uh, both and maybe in the way uh, the, the dad, I, I'm with you, I, I don't know you, but he talked about being an imposter dad, sometimes feeling like he's inadequate. Um, I have a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and we've got a lot of change going on in our household, and my wife's doing a better job of me to keeping up. Um, but it's a challenging thing, and it's a challenging thing as, as believers, and, and I believe the woman also shared just about how um, it's, it's hard for us to deal with those inner feelings of guilt, and you know, we want to be a better Christian or followers of Jesus and, and be better at that, but we're, we're a little bit conflicted, and I appreciate just that opportunity as you as a church to kind of reflect back on that, and this passage draws us to that for sure this morning. I grew up in Oakland. I was born in Berkeley, grew up in Oakland. When I was about 10 years old, actually about the same age as my 11-year-old son, 
We have similar characteristics. We're a little bit cheeky. We're playful. We get in trouble a lot. Uh, really active. I went through a stage where I like to see things burn. I, if you're a, <laughs> if you're a, a parent, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I don't know if this is a, a young boys thing. I know girls are c- curious as well, but they're much more polite about this. Boys will just start burning stuff. Well, I kind of got into that stage, and I was kind of obsessed. My dad took me to our local hardware store, um, MacArthur Boulevard, if you guys know Oakland. The man running the store was a family friend for years. John Volstrom, if, if any of you know his name. And my dad went upstairs into the office uh, to settle accounts. In those days, you could run a tab, and he extended that to our family growing up. And I was wandering the aisles, and hardware stores, if you're a boy, as a kid, are fantastic. Um, everything's there. You know, like the world's a possibility. I mean, just, and, and when I came down the aisle, and there was those long boxes of matches. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The long ones you take on camping trips or you light your fire with. Well, as a kid, the long box of matches, it's just like, wow. You know, you just wonder, what, what can I do with that? And at this stage, I, I was into burning things. I had the microscope, I mean, not the microscope, the magnifying glass, and I was setting small fires, you know, and, and I thought to myself, it would be great if I, if I could get my own box of matches. So I kind of looked around, and, in, in, you know, I, I, had a, I had a time in my life where I was shoplifting and, and you know... <laughs> Praise be to God, there's grace. But at this time, I, I just discreetly, what I thought discreetly, took a box of matches. Not, not the, little, the little box, you know, slip them in the pocket. Not the pretty good-sized box that you would, you know, light a camp stove. I went for the, the long ones. You know what I'm talking about? So you get the match and the fuel all, all in the same container. I did that. I slipped it under my shirt. Well, unbeknownst to me... My father and the owner of the store, uh, John Volstrom, same church, Berkeley Covenant, and then Oakland Covenant, and they're looking through the two-way glass in the office, which looks down in all of the aisles of the store. It's a very unique security system, you know? And there I am, and they're just watching me put the matches in my jacket, or up underneath my shirt, in my back pocket. I thought I was clever. You know, I wandered around. I played with the nuts and bolts. I, I weighed a few bolts, and Dad finished up. Well, John came down, and he found me in an aisle. John, the owner of the store, he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, I, I don't think that you, uh, that you uh, meant to uh, buy those matches. And I said, oh. <laughs> he says, but we will have to buy those matches. Did you have any money? I said, no. So he walked me to the front counter, and he asked me to take out the matches, which I did. At this point, I'm just shaking. Like my dad discreetly, and to my dad's credit, he kind of went over and looked at some duct tape or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty embarrassing as a dad. I'm thinking about imposter dad. You know, think if your son a few years from now is shoplifting. That, you know, it's a whole other level. John now, he has me at the counter, and he says to the cashier, would you ring us up, please? And we get rung up, and it's, I don't know what it is, 239. And I was, I think, 239 short. And uh, <laughs> he pulled out his own wallet. And he put money on the counter and the transaction. And he even gave me the receipt. And he said, hey, next time, just know you can always ask. And then my dad kind of joined me. And we said, well you know, shaking, shame. My dad said a few things on the way home. But I think he, he got that the moment was enough. 
And I'd like to tell you that the story ended there. That I would have understood the, the lesson of grace and forgiveness. Ten days later, I'm on top of our playhouse in the backyard with a couple buddies up the street. And we've watered up newspaper and we've thrown them down between the small gap between the playhouse roof and the fence, the neighbor's fence. We had a neighbor there, a neighbor there, a neighbor there. We're on the triangle, you know, where all neighbors collide. We had the, and I'm throwing the paper down there and I'm taking the matches, which we had broken into pieces. And I'm flicking the matches from the strike zone over the edge and to see if we can get the paper to light 10 feet below. This is what you do when you're a 10-year-old boy and parents send you outside to, to play. The video games, this is... So we're flipping the matches and we get that thing going and it starts to burn. We're pretty excited. And I look over the edge and flames are coming up. And then we kind of went from that, this is cool, to, uh-oh. We just did something. Well, the fire got put out. The neighbors got involved. My mother was involved. My father definitely got involved when he got home from, from church. But how did I go from grace and experiencing one of the best life, life lessons that I ever could have about forgiveness and grace to wanting to burn again? And I think this is part of what we deal with on a regular basis as believers and, and how we are in Christ and, and how we experience faith and, and forgiveness. Clyde uh, Snodgrass, this is a an author from uh, North Park, from our seminary there in Chicago for The Covenant. For those of you who are familiar with The Covenant, Clyde Snodgrass wrote a book. It says this, Who God Says You Are, A Christian Understanding of Identity. I've been reading through parts of this. This is a book that I think Scott's got in his office. It's certainly online through Covenant Books if you get a chance. Who God Says You Are, A Christian Understanding of identity. And I, I think that's a, it's an interesting thing. He, he points out a number of things in the book. And um, you're welcome to uh, write that down or come see that afterwards, um, who God says you are. And uh, Snodgrass says this, one of the purposes of Christianity is to give you a vision of what is possible and what should be, to give you a vision of who God says you are. So who does God say you are? Are you a sinner or a saint? got two choices this morning, sinner or saint. Are you a sinner or are you a saint? Do you want to be like Jesus or are you not like Jesus? Two reasons I'm not like Jesus. I'm, I'm more like a sinner. Well, I'm not perfect. I think that's pretty clear. And I don't like to spend time with homeless people. I'm scared of homeless people. I'm just going to confess that to you guys this morning. I've been working with the homeless ministry for a couple of years in Santa Cruz. We have a lot of homeless people. And I always think selfishly. I think of myself first. And I'm reminded always that I'm not like Jesus. But two reasons I am like Jesus. Well, Ephesians 5 tells me that I'm a loved child of God. And I've also been given the message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 19 through 20. Paul addresses the Romans at the beginning of this book, which we're in this morning in Romans chapter 8. Paul addresses the, uh, the, the Romans uh, this way. He says... To all who are loved by God and called as saints. Or in Ephesians, at the start of that book, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. You know that word saints, hagios in, in, in Greek, it means holy or set apart. It's the same word used to describe the holy of holies. This is a powerful word. 
In the beginning of Romans, which is our text for today, and I, I can assume that we are reading it as a church for those of you who call yourselves believers or followers of Christ, or those of you who are interested in following Christ, this is Paul's way of saying, hey, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're considered to be a Christian, you are also holy. You're called a saint. You might not feel like a saint, but you're certainly called a saint, and you're set apart. Snodgrass says in his book, and he continues, with all of identity, part is given and part is chosen. We were born into certain families. We have come different backgrounds, different educations, different ethnicities, different cultural heritage, and all of this makes up who we are, and this is part of our identity. But ultimately, who has the right to say to you who you are? Society, I think, at the moment seems to say something like this. I am somebody if people know about me. We're guilty of this, right? Selfies, by definition, are taken so that other people will follow us. We're saying to someone, hey, check out my life. I'm not a big Facebook guy. My wife dabbles because she wants to keep us informed. But I, I, I don't think my life is all that interesting. A lot of people like to tell about their life, and so other people will be attracted to their life. And I think society is reinforcing that. Our society says something like, who's following you? Who knows about you? That's important. Or actually, society's message is, you are what you possess and the status that you have. What can be purchased? Good morning. I grew up in Oakland. Society tells us that what we have and what we possess is, is who we are. And um, I'm not sure, do we have that slide, Andrew, of, of uh, that uh, mansion in Montecito? Is that possible? Um, down in Santa Barbara, this is the richest of the rich. I don't know if you guys have been in that area. It's, a, it's one of the smaller houses in that area. And, <laughs> and society tells us that we are what we have. The, the image that we have is because of that which, which we possess. And I, I think for the most part we're buying this. For those of you guys who don't know, this is Oprah Winfrey's, one of her homes. And if you could show me the next picture um, there. This is after the mudslide went through that very home. And what I love about this picture, I actually have a lot of respect for Oprah and what she's done and, and who she is. She's glamorous. She is articulate. She is thoughtful. She's amazing. But when I see this picture, she looks kind of normal. She looks kind of like... I think all of us would look when we first visited a site where our house got knocked away. You know, the reality is, is that when something happens in our life, when tragedy comes along and strips away our possessions and our appearances, and maybe it's a health issue, what then? What happens? Who are we? Thanks, Andrew. You can, you can help Oprah go away. But, you know, she went from that to that in just a couple hours. And I think it's vulnerable, and I think it's kind of who we are all in a moment. You know, we're also influenced by what people say about us, and this happens a lot at work, I think, for a lot of us. And, um, you know, people say, oh, you know, that person's really smart, and, uh, you know, actually, she's amazing. You should watch what she can do. Wait till she, you watch how she organizes this project and runs it. And if she leads this project, she's going to end up over here. And at this point, you're thinking, oh, imposter syndrome, right? This is what happens. People compliment you at work. And then you think, well, if they really knew me, they, they wouldn't say this about me. But some of our identity has to be learned. Virtue has to be learned. Possibilities for life have to be learned as well. 
Snodgrass in, that, in his book continues this. What we do with our given identities is the issue. You can help Oprah go away there, Andrew. Otherwise, we're going to be thinking about her the, the whole time. <laughs> you know, what we do with our given identities is the issue. How do we see ourselves and how do we respond? John Piper, as some of you know him, in a sermon um, I was listening to other people preach about Romans 8, you know, hoping to steal all of their material. John, John Piper uh, said in his sermon uh, some years ago about this, he says, um, the power of the words now no condemnation in verse 1 of our, our text this morning is saying this, all of God's wrath against our sin is replaced with all of God's mercy. All of God's wrath against our sin is replaced with all of God's mercy. That's amazing. That's fantastic. He says, in Christ Jesus, God is always for you. And he always sees you this way. God is always for you. He continues, if this truth that God is only for us and not against us, and that he is for us with almighty mercy and omnipotent assistance all day and all night, waking and sleeping, oh, how differently we would live and sleep. What freedom. And yet many of us don't feel free. Many of us struggle a lot with those feelings of what do I do with my sin? What do I do with my guilt? What do I do in those times when we, we don't feel worthy? We beat ourselves up, and I think we feel like we should be better Christians. Or we're continually struggling with the same types of sin. We're struggling with those things over and over again. Many of us have a hard time forgiving others as well or seeing others as God sees them. You know, these people could be close to us. They could be family members. They could be people at work. They could be people, neighbors, or others who have, who have harmed us in some way or, or done things that just seem unforgivable. I've been struggling this week with this topic. I've been serving on a jury, and, and, and it, it's just a hard week for me. Um, we finish again next week, but I had a whole week's worth of testimony where, in this case, there's a lot that's going on. And I just think, gosh, could God really see the people involved in this case as lovable? Of course. Absolutely. There's some horrific stuff in this case, and it's, it's burdened me, and it's given me a heavy heart. But I know God sees each one of us as people who need a relationship with him who need reconciliation, who need forgiveness. Why do I have such a hard time extending that to others? We see sin in our own lives, and I think sometimes it's even harder for us to extend grace to others. But that doesn't mean freedom isn't real. Absolutely, it's available to us. The Scripture promises that we are free from the penalties of sin. We are broken, yet forgiven. Amen? We are now daughters and sons of God, loved children. Maybe we need to see ourselves as loved before we feel loved. And maybe we need to see ourselves as forgiven before we feel forgiven. Snodgrass says, the ideal self, the summoning self that God intends you to be, that is in front of you all the time. It's calling you. But, you know, we're co-authors of our lives. We're co-authors of our, our life story. With all of identity, part is given and part is chosen. The part that is given 
by faith comes from God. And the part that is chosen is us choosing participation in Christ. Faith isn't so much about asking Jesus in my heart, though I understand how we use that phrase, but it's about being in Christ. But what does it mean to be in Christ? What does that really mean? We just sang it, in Christ alone. It's a fantastic song. It's a powerful song. But what does that mean, in Christ? Well, first, I think it's to accept that Jesus is the Son of God and to consider Jesus not only as the Son of God, but Savior, as Messiah, as the one who helps us come before the Lord. In fact, it's why God chooses not to punish us, not to condemn us, not to carry out the sentence that's due to each one of us. Romans 5.15 says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Romans 6 tells us that in Christ means dying or being baptized into his death, rising with Christ to live with him. And Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 says this. There's this great phrase in Greek. It's sunigiero. And sunigiero is, a, is, a, is, is one word in Greek, and yet it means uh, raised together with. There's this powerful phrase in Greek where it only happens because there's something else. Raised together with, crucified with, raised together with, seated with. And all that with is, is with Christ. The scripture tells us that we died together with Christ. We were raised together with Christ. We were seated in the heavenly realms next to the right hand of the Father. Right hand, who sits in the right hand of the Father? It's Jesus. We, so you got God the Father. I don't know what he or she looks like to you. I got the old man with the cane. The funny thing is, and we don't have time for this, so don't do it, Weiss. Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Jesus, with his human body, helps us to relate to God the Father. You got the Father, Son, and Spirit, but the Father doesn't look kind of like a father, you know? See, I've already lost you. But you got God the Father, you got God the Son, and then we're seated next to the Son. What is true of Jesus is now true of us as well, and yet we don't believe it. We don't feel it. We don't experience it. We're weighed down by our guilt, our sin, and we don't often experience the joy and freedom that God has in mind for us. But Paul struggled with this, absolutely struggled. In, in chapter 7, right before this, he, he basically says, hey, the law is good. The law is holy. It's supposed to point me towards Jesus and help me to be a better person and follow me in a relationship with God. But the reality is, is that the law, what I want to do, I can't do. The law is good, but I can't do it. I know I'm not supposed to sin, but I keep sinning. Paul says this in verse, in chapter 7, the whole chapter. And then he says, but thanks be to God. There's Jesus. I mean, he didn't say it like that because it was in Greek. But that's what he says. And then we get to the therefore. But thanks be to God, there's Jesus. Therefore, because of Jesus, Paul says, we are no longer enemies of God. We are reconciled to God. We're in relationship with God. We've not been condemned. He hasn't chosen to give us the punishment that we deserve. And we've given life and freedom. So might I ask that we start with the truth of the scripture. Believe God's words to you through the Apostle Paul this morning. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Choose the spirit of life over the spirit of sin and death. And when you do stumble and fall, as we do, know that there is grace and there's forgiveness. Know that God is for us. He's not against us. His almighty mercy is there. He's waiting for us as a loving heavenly father to embrace us, to welcome us back. A lot of us have this idea of God the Father with a big stick or an oppressive God or a heavy-hearted God. Maybe some of us have had poor relationships with a, with a father that was heavy-handed. It's hard for us to see God the Father. Well, maybe we had a loving mother. So think about God the Mother. We've, we've got those images in scriptures to remind us that there is a welcoming back. There is a forgiveness. There is a love. There is a hug in, in many ways waiting. He wants you to know that you're a child of God. He loves you and has forgiven you. Maybe it's time for you to stop beating yourself up about, about sin. And maybe it's time for you to start considering what life would be like as a saint. God sees us this way, so why can't we see ourselves this way? Well, for me personally, the obvious answer is sin. I struggle with sin. Lust, selfishness. I, I've got a huge ego. I, I don't like to be... Um, kind of put down. I'm defensive about everything. I want to be a great dad, and at times I'm not. I want to be a loving husband, and sometimes I'm not. You know, I'm broken. I'm a broken person, but I'm forgiven. Amen? Amen. You know, I'm loved, and grace is a powerful thing. It's offered to me because of Christ. I believe it's true. I need to accept the responsibility then for living as a believer in Christ. What's my part of it? Part of our identity is given, and, and, and part of our identity uh, is worked out through our lives. And who am I? Do I believe it's true? Do I, can I read the scripture and believe it's true? But I also have to take responsibility for it and seek accountability for those things I'm struggling with. To ask others, how goes your walk with Christ? How are you doing with him? And, and, and allow others to ask that of me. I graduated uh, a few years ago uh, from Cal Poly. All right, like 30 years ago. Cal Poly, I was involved in InterVarsity, a great group of guys I, had, I lived with in the dorms and then later in apartments, and we were all involved in InterVarsity, and a number of us, a couple years after we graduated, we missed that camaraderie, we missed those guys being in our lives, so we started meeting um, uh, for a three-day weekend. And if you fast forward, um, all these years later, we still get together once a year for a three-day weekend. We have something called the hot seat. This is eight guys, up to 15 guys, depending on who can come at any point. We're all different parts of the country, depending on who's hosting. We have something called the hot seat. For about 20 minutes, you sit in the hot seat in the middle of a room with guys around you, and we go through a, a number of questions. We talk about our lives and our families and our work. We talk about things like sin, if, if that's there. We talk about things that were came up the year before. We talk about what's going to come ahead. And then we take another 20, 25 minutes and we pray specifically for that person in the hot seat. And you know by signing up to the weekend, when you buy your airline ticket, when you invest in the hotel or the B&B or however, it is, you're saying to yourself, I'm going to hold myself accountable with these guys. I want to be in their lives. I want to pray for those guys. I'm not just going to ask those guys about how are you treating your wife, but I'm going to sit in the chair and I'm going to let them ask me those same questions. Why do I choose to do it? Because we're so busy, and it's hard. I, I, ladies, you're much better at this. Women, and I'll just confess on behalf of the men in the, in, in, in the room, we have a hard time sustaining meaningful relationship. 
We have a hard time being vulnerable with each other. We have a hard time letting down our guard and saying things like, I feel like an imposter dead. Amen for your testimony last week, brother. These things are hard for us, but I need, I need to show up every year to be accountable because I think that's what God's calling me to do. I think that's what GRX is trying to do right now. I think that's why Scott Lew is on a silent retreat with others who are saying, let's slow down. Let's say where we are at with God. Let's take time to be reminded of the goodness of what God is doing in our lives. Let's be in our each other's lives, in our small groups, and the way we interact, and family driving an hour from Tracy. Amen. This is, this is good stuff. These are people being in relationship. They're saying, I want to be part of something other than myself. I want to do life and faith together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That really encourages me. You know, it's accountability. And it's, uh, it's an opportunity to hear things, but it's more than that. It's, it's having fun. It's, it's working on something we call sanctification. It's wanting to be like Jesus, you know, and it, it's wanting to, to daily make things better and take baby steps uh, to being a better follower of Christ. So come to church knowing you're not alone. You know, all of us experience this in our Christian walk and our faith. You know, we feel like phonies sometimes. We feel like we're, we're, we're sinners, not saints. But we need to know that we're forgiven. And we need to know that we have a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. So let's encourage one another. Let's be vulnerable with one another. Let's remind people that they're loved. Let's extend more hugs. Is this a hugging church? I, I don't know. I don't know if it is. <laughs> it's not a hugging church. Just, you know, be a warm handshake church. <laughs> so glad that donuts are cut out next, next week because I love the love the donuts and coffee at this time because you guys do faith and life and you hang out and you, nobody rushes to the parking lot after. This is good stuff. And these are your kids doing life together and you guys being honest as parents and saying, we're not doing this right, but we're going to do this as a village, right? It takes a village. And for those of you who are single, know that you're aunts and uncles. And for those of you who are grandmas and grandpas, we need you. We need to do this thing together, not just to raise children, but to lay, raise people in a community of faith and to know that church is multi-generational. How do we do this together? How do we take time to take, have coffees and breakfasts, invite each other into our own homes and be vulnerable with people? Let's remind people that they're loved. Let's give more hugs and smiles. Let's be the body of Christ to each other so that we then can be the body of Christ to all those around us and those who need to experience freedom and forgiveness as well. Amen?